Thanks for joining us. Uh, this past week I was having an email conversation with Funjo, who is one of our African church members, and it was about one of his countrymen, a pastor in Nigeria, Pastor Andimi, who was martyred earlier this year by the Boko Haram militants who kidnapped and beheaded him. Uh, and you know, we were just saying how it puts our own troubles in perspective here in the United States that in spite of everything, you know, we have a functioning government, whereas in many parts of the world, the state seems to be largely absent or even uh, complicit in committing atrocities against their own people. You know, here we uh, argue about wearing masks in church, whereas in northern Nigeria, they don't even know if they'll come home alive from church. And, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of Christians who, like Pastor Andimi, have been martyred for their faith often because they've refused to renounce Jesus as Lord. And when I read stories like that, perhaps in the Fox's Book of Martyrs or in the uh, modern day equivalent, the voice of the martyrs, I often wonder, would I have the same courage, you know, in the face of persecution or death? You know, if I had to choose uh, between renouncing Jesus or being beheaded, what would I do? What would you do? Right? Perhaps you think this is a non-issue for us. It's just you know, hypothetical, so not worth thinking about. And you might be right. But you know, even in recent history, tragedies like the Columbine school massacre show us what is possible. And even though they say now that it was uh, wrongly reported that Cassie Bernal was shot because she said yes to believing in God, it's not inconceivable to think that that could happen in the United States today. You know, Christian beliefs and claims are under assault, and it may only be a matter of time before church leaders find themselves in court and Christians under threat from a hostile culture. That scenario was once unthinkable. It's not today. But we shouldn't panic. And neither should we uh, react with anger, like, you know, we want our country back, or this shouldn't be happening to us. Because the truth is, for the last 2,000 years, persecution has been the normal experience for the majority of Christians around the world. You know, anyone uh, seeking to follow the way of Jesus can expect to encounter hostility. That's why it says in uh, 1 Peter 4.12, as we've seen recently, you know, we shouldn't be surprised when our faith is tested or challenged as if, you know, it's something strange that's happening to us. For Christ followers, it's actually strange not to be persecuted. And it's what we're starting to see happening in the book of Acts in our current series of messages. The first few chapters, you know, they start off with this rather idyllic picture of life in the early church, where we read of life in their community with their uh, devotion to God, you know, their joy and their togetherness, their generosity to those in need, the amazing miracles that were being done, the favor they had with all the people, and the incredible growth as every day people were coming to faith. It's the kind of vision we might want for the church in America. But as we've seen, it wasn't long before they met with opposition and conflict. In fact, you know, after the third chapter, only three of the remaining 25 chapters have no mention of persecution in the story of the church. As we'll see another time, the early church grew and God's kingdom expanded in spite of, and sometimes even because of, the persecution they experienced. And one of the catalytic moments 
was the murder of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, which really concludes the first part of the book of Acts. And so it's to Stephen I want us to turn now to see how he responded to hostility in the face of death. You know, what can we learn from him uh, that will help us in the trials that we may face? We meet Stephen in Acts chapter 6, where he's introduced as one of the seven men chosen uh, to serve the poor widows in Jerusalem. But we're also told he was full of grace and power and performed signs and wonders, which no doubt gave him opportunity to share the good news about Jesus. Well, this led to some Jews arguing against him. Uh, but they were continually confounded by the wisdom that he spoke with uh, that had been given to him by the Holy Spirit. And so it seems that they then bribed some people to lie and to say that they'd heard Stephen speaking blasphemy against Moses and against God. And so Stephen is brought before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, where he's given a chance to defend himself. But he does a strange thing. He tells them the story of their people, Israel of Abraham and Joseph and of Moses, and he reminds them how it was their fathers who had been disobedient to Moses and unfaithful to God. He kind of turns the tables on them. And then at the end of it, he draws his conclusion. You're a stiff-necked people, he says, who have always resisted the Holy Spirit. Your fathers persecuted the prophets that God sent to them. And what's worse, he says, you yourselves have betrayed and murdered the Son of God. In other words, they were the ones who should be on trial, not Stephen. Well, we're told in Acts 7 verse 54 that when they heard this, they were furious. They gnashed their teeth. You know, I don't know what that means, but let's read what happened next. Right? This is the passage I want us to focus on in verse 55. It says there, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Well, at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul, who was, of course, later to become the Apostle Paul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. What an amazing contrast that is, isn't it? This hate-filled crowd screaming at him, inflicting this brutal, painful death on him. And yet his death is described as falling asleep. Christians don't die, they fall asleep only to find themselves ushered into the very presence of Jesus himself. So what can we learn then from these last minutes of Stephen's life? Uh, there's three things I want to comment on, and they've all got to do with this amazing revelation that Stephen has, where you know, it's like the veil between heaven and earth is pulled back, and in the glory that is revealed, he sees the risen, exalted Lord Jesus standing there at the right hand of God, Elsewhere, Jesus is described as being seated at the right hand of God. But here he is standing. It's like Stephen, you know, in, in his speech had courageously stood up for Jesus. And here is Jesus standing up for him, ready to welcome him home with a well done, good and faithful servant. But it's this vision of Jesus 
that gave Stephen three things. The grace to endure suffering, the grace to endure death, and the grace to be a witness for Christ. So first of all, the grace to endure suffering. I asked earlier, you know, would I have the courage to suffer if necessary and not shrink back from confessing Jesus as my Lord? Would you? I think we find the answer in this story. Uh, when Stephen's opponents respond to him with hatred and fury, at the same time we see here God's response too. Because in verse 55 it says, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up and saw the glory of God. It's like in that moment, you know, God drew near to Stephen and filled him with his presence. Um, it was the same when Peter and John had to respond to their opponents and they were filled with the Holy Spirit as well. It's the Spirit who gives us the grace that we need. And for Stephen, it seems like the Spirit opened his eyes to see this vision of the Lord Jesus that sustained him in his trial. Because in that moment, you know, when Stephen might have felt overwhelmed by the hostility of this, these men, or when he may have been tempted to react and to curse them and call down judgment on them, it's like all of that faded from view, grew strangely dim as you saw the beautiful, loving face of Jesus. And it's like this vision of Jesus, this victorious risen Lord, became a far greater reality, infinitely more real to him than the trial he was experiencing on earth. And so their screams and their stones had no effect on him because he was looking at Jesus. And I really do believe that we can expect God to do uh, the same for us in whatever trial we might be called to walk through whether that's persecution or sickness or hardship or loss. You know, we may wonder if we can endure the suffering that others go through. And, you know, the truth is we can't, not in ourselves, but we're not left to ourselves because Jesus is interceding for us. He is interceding for you and the Holy Spirit will give you the grace that you need. He is with you and he will strengthen you and sustain you. It's the promise of scripture to all who are looking to him. You know, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, says David, for you are with me. Jesus said the same thing, having defeated death, he promised his followers, I will be with you always. It's why Psalm 34 verse 5 says, those who look to him are radiant, their faces will never be ashamed. Are you looking to Jesus today? Because he will give you the grace you need in your time of trouble. He has promised to be with you. The second thing that this vision of Jesus gave to Stephen was the grace to face death. In verse 59 there it says, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Evil men might destroy his body, but Stephen knew they could never take his soul, his eternal spirit, because that belonged to Jesus who was waiting to welcome him home. Right? In the face of death, he could say with this uh, serene confidence, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. It reminded me of a, a story I read recently about praying Jacob. He was a, a, an African slave who lived in Maryland before the Civil War. And he made his habit to pray three times a day without fail. That's where he got his nickname, Praying Jacob, from. But it enraged his owner, who was a cruel, harsh man called Saunders. 
because whenever the time came to pray, Jacob would just stop whatever he was doing, his work in the fields, he'd just stop and he'd kneel down and pray to his master, Jesus. And so one day, Saunders came up to Jacob while he was praying and put a gun to his head and ordered him to stop praying and get back to work. But Jacob was unafraid and invited Saunders to pull the trigger. Your loss will be my gain, he said. I have a soul and a body. The body belongs to you, but my soul belongs to Jesus. And Saunders was so shaken by Jacob's strength and his supernatural lack of fear that he never touched him again. In fact, he confessed in private he would have freely given the whole world, if he could, to have what Jacob possessed. But you see, Jacob's serenity, much like Stephen's, came from knowing that he belonged to Jesus. His soul and spirit belonged to Christ alone, and no one and nothing could snatch him out of his hand. Not a cruel master, not even death. You know, when you're looking to Jesus, then death becomes just a doorway to glory where we join with him in the heavenly realm. That's what Stephen saw. He saw the door open and Jesus was standing there. And I really do believe that we will all see something like that in the face of death. You know, a door opening. Jesus waiting to receive us. We get a glimpse of it here through Stephen's eyes. It's why the Apostle Paul, who uh, also faced death on many occasions, could say this in Romans 8. He says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you have that confidence? Do you know that you belong to Jesus? that he's robbed death of its power and made it into a doorway to be with him forever. If you know that, if you know Jesus, then there is nothing you need fear. I mean, what can man do to you? Take away your possessions, your liberty, your rights, your life? You know, we can get resentful and angry when these things are threatened, can't we? But, you know, if we truly saw Jesus for who he is, understanding that our eternal destiny is secure in him and that you know one day we'll join with him and and, and the, the eternal inheritance he has won for us will be given to us on that day you know and it'll be infinitely more wonderful than anything we could have imagined it would totally change our perspective on life and our attitude towards those who may threaten us listen to uh, what the writer of Hebrews says to persecuted Christians in his day He says there, uh, Hebrews 10, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Wow. Did you hear that? Did you... Listen, let's just read that again. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, property that was rightfully theirs, right? You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. No retaliation, no resentment, joyfully, he says, joyfully. How could that be? Because he says here, you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and one that will last forever. What an amazing perspective 
that is. It's one we so desperately need today, a revelation of Jesus waiting for us, ready to give us our eternal inheritance. You know, everything else is temporary and inconsequential compared to the riches that we possess in Christ Jesus. Can you see? It's this revelation that gives us the grace we need to endure suffering, the grace to face death, and then lastly, the grace to be a powerful witness for Christ. Even as they were stoning Stephen to death, Stephen, still captivated by this vision of the risen, exalted Lord, cries out to him here in verse 60, uh, where he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them, echoing Jesus' own words from the cross. Instead of being consumed with bitterness or resentment or self-pity, Stephen full of the Holy Spirit, is consumed by the presence of Jesus and finds grace to show mercy to his persecutors, asking the Lord to forgive them, including a young man called Saul, who seemed to have a role in overseeing his murder. And yet, you know, after Saul's own encounter with the risen Christ on the Damascus Road, the apostle Paul, as he became known, probably did more than anyone else in the history of the church to advance the gospel. And it was St. Augustine who said the church owed Paul's salvation to the prayers of Stephen. You know, we must remember our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against other people, right? No matter how much they may threaten us. Our battle is with the demonic forces, the, the powers of darkness that are operating through people and in our society. And so it's so vital that we, that we remember that in these days ahead. Because if those demonic forces can get us to react to other people with anger and judgment, you know, we'll just become like them. It'll just increase the darkness where there is no hope. If we want to see the kingdom of God come, to revolutionize our nation in these dark days is going to come through Christ's followers being so full of his spirit, so uh, captivated by his vision of Jesus that they cannot help but to overflow with love and mercy to the people around them. And especially to those who may malign us or mistreat us, who may be hostile or even hurt us, because that's what Jesus did for you and I. But we cannot do this ourselves. We need the Holy Spirit's help. You know, we desperately need God to come and fill us with his spirit in these days to give us a revelation of Jesus that will captivate our hearts and flood our lives with his presence. So will you please join with me right now? Let's pray for that. Let's pray for ourselves and for our church and for the church in America today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, risen, exalted, victorious Lord Jesus, we need you. Uh, Lord, the church needs you today. Please forgive us um, for how we've not represented you in your ways. Uh, please forgive us where, Lord, we've been more shaped by the world than by your word. Uh, Lord, we need your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, that you've given him to us. Uh, but will you now fill us, Lord, fill us, your church, with his presence, uh, that we might know you more. Lord, that we might see you high and lifted up, 
that we might be captivated, Lord, by a vision of your glory and majesty. We need your grace, Lord. Grace to live for you. Grace to die for you. Grace to be your witnesses, Lord Jesus. Oh God, will you please reveal yourself to us. Revive your church, Lord, that many, many people might turn to you in these days and that you might be glorified in our lives and in this nation. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.